Welcome to The Animated Journey, a podcast featuring interviews with animation professionals working in television, film, and games. I'm your host, Angela Ensminger, and with me today is editor Jeff Schutze. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing well. Excellent. And this is really exciting because we're recording this in the future. Future. Future, future, future. 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 Because... We're now both on vacation with our respective families, but this episode is coming out after Christmas, and we wanted to make sure that you guys got your wonderful fill of animation. So, Jeff, how was your Christmas? My Christmas will be going great. (laughs) And I know mine will be, too. I'm I'm sure that it'll be absolutely fantastic. I'm sure that my family's doing great. I got all the presents I wanted this year. Mm -hmm. I ate a lot of food. Oh, yeah. Yes, it was, it's, will be, is going great. (laughs) Yep, exactly. (laughs) I love it. The power of technology. And I'm sure that all of the events happening in animation, heck, you guys are all on vacation. Don't worry about events (laughs) happening in the world of animation. Just spend time with your family. Although, I will say... It is not too late to sign up for CTNX. The deadline is December 31st if you want to get 25% off. So if you want to go to CTNX next November and you want to save some money, highly recommend that. Also, as of the time of this recording, they did not yet have exhibitor information up, but it's after Christmas. Maybe it's up now. Maybe you guys should check on that. So we'll have the link in the show notes that you guys can find out. Also, it is not too late to sign up to be an exhibitor at Fan Alley Expo. So if you're interested in being a professional exhibitor or being an up-and-coming exhibitor, you can submit your application and just like CTNX, they will review it and hopefully you guys will get in on that as well. It's a lot of fun. Even if you don't exhibit, definitely go next year because it's a lot of fun. It's very inexpensive. Eva, who runs Fan Alley, she is a wonderful, awesome person. So make sure to check that out. And also, something I didn't mention in the last episode, Cassie Soliday actually interviewed her for the Ink and Paint Girls podcast a little while ago. So you can hear Eva's story if you are so inclined to find out more about the the woman, the myth, the legend Mm. that is Eva. So very excited for today's interview in the future because Mm -hmm. I had an opportunity to sit down with the one and only Nick Gregory. He is a background painter for Disney Publishing. He's also worked for Rough Draft Studios, Cartoon Network, and a myriad of other freelance places. He's a professional wrestler. He has his own action figure. Wow. Which just amazes me. And Jeff, what'd you think about the interview today? Oh, I I thought it was really just very educational and inspirational for people coming up in the industry. Awesome. Same as I. So very happy to present episode 61, Interview with Nick Gregory. So I'm here at Casa de Gregory. This is <laughs> seriously, y'all's place is the coolest pad. I love it. Excellent. It is really great to be sitting here talking with you today, Nick. Likewise, Angela. Good to be here. Excellent, excellent. So your story is amazing. You have one of the coolest stories of how you got into the animation industry and your life beforehand that I have ever heard. So let's just jump into it. 
first off, where in Australia are you from? Okay, I'm, I'm originally from Brisbane, Australia. So for people who don't know, that's north of Sydney, kind of in the middle on the east coast of Australia. Excellent. So growing up, you've mentioned to me before that you always loved animation and movies. What was it about it that you loved so much? For me, animation was always in my life because of my dad. He watched it through his life and even went in his 40s and 50s. And as he gets older now, it's still there. So that, that was a big influence. But the starting point for me was Fantasia, watching that film. So two weeks before that, my grandmother took me to an art gallery for the first time. And I was amazed at all the artwork. But it was when I saw Fantasia, I was like, this is magic. Like artwork's coming to life. And that was kind of the starting point for me. I was hooked then. And I have been, even with all the side steps, I've been hooked to animation from seeing that magic happen. Like real artwork was moving on the screen. So that was the starting point for me. So when you were a kid, were you drawing all the time or painting or taking classes or anything like that? I was. I don't know if I was taking classes, but I kind of manipulated all my schooling to go towards artwork. So even if it was like English lessons or science or something, I'd find a way to make sure the teacher made it artistic or creative. So I was always pushing creativity. And I do remember when I was a kid, I used to draw with a ballpoint pen, just like scenes in the living room. And I'm talking like two or three years old, I was drawing these, I guess they were plain airs, just of the living room. And my mom still got a couple of those too. So I was being creative from an early age, but I also then diverted into other creative things like performing and music as well as a kid and as an adult. So yeah, I, I was making, but it wasn't the only thing I was doing. Okay. And so growing up in Australia, you're in this other country. What were some of the native to Australian television shows or movies that you're watching that we just haven't gotten over here? Okay. So when we watch cartoons in the morning, I know people had like the Disney afternoons and the, like the Saturday morning stuff. We used to have a thing called, it's a carpet looking puppet. It was the worst looking thing. <laughs> and it was called Agro. And he used to get on the screen and he'd scream and he'd be angry the whole time in the morning. And it was part of a show called Boris's Breakfast Club. It was the worst. It was like a big guy in black spandex had a crown on. And the castle that he used to do the show from that my parents told me he used to do the show from, we used to pass on my way to my grandmother's. So every time we'd point, go, that's where all the cartoons are made. And there was no one in there. It's just a, a castle for that show. But that's kind of the way we saw the cartoons. And then also Looney Tunes were big. So we had like an afternoon spot where different comedians and presenters from Australia would introduce American cartoons to us so that's how I got used to Looney Tunes every afternoon you'd run home you'd watch that and then the Nickelodeon afternoon would be on for like an hour so we got a lot of the American stuff animation wasn't big in Australia so there wasn't much coming out but TV wise we got to see things like a show called Neighbours and Home and Away they're huge all our big stars come from there so I guess that's the only noteworthy thing I think I was watching as well <laughs> I just love the idea of a guy in spandex talking to a puppet <laughs> There's yeah. so much of that here. I think of public access television mm -hmm. and different things like Mr. Rogers and oh, then yeah. you have Lamb Chop and there's just all of this stuff just filtering in. Yeah. I love that. Of course there's Australian equivalents. Of course, that. yeah. I think every country has that equivalent. Mm -hmm. And it was terrible stuff like to look at. <laughs> or it is now. But at the time I loved it. I thought it was amazing. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you said you were performing, you mm -hmm. love art, you love Fantasia, you love all this television. Wrestling then. How do you go from art to wrestling? What was the path there? All right, so growing up, I'd always watched it, but just the same way I watched cartoons in the morning and stuff. Like It was just there. And then one day I saw my first live show. I think it was 21. So I was an adult now, I think. And that show was so amazing to see it live. And it clicked with me. Here's something cool and creative, just like my artwork. These guys create their look, their gimmick, their clothing, everything. And the match, they tell a story. So I was hooked. And then two weeks later, I just found a local school in Australia. And I went down and I was scared and I was nervous because, you know, these guys get beaten up a lot. And I walked 
walked in there and they, all these big burly guys are staring at me and I'm like, am I doing the right thing? Stepping away from artwork and at the time I was doing graphic design as well. And then I took my first bumps on the floor and you have to be a little crazy to do it, I think. But I did it and I was hooked. I was just like, this is amazing. Like the physicality of it. And then it wasn't long before you get into making your gear and your gimmick. And that was the fun part for me. That was when I knew I'd keep going. So if you remember the scene from Spider-Man where he's in his bedroom and he's drawing out what he's going to look like in his costume, I got to do that. And yeah, I just drew my costume and I spent weeks doing it. And that was one of the most fun things about it. You could change who you were all the time. And I was hooked and I did it for, I think, eight years on and off. So I was competing for a few years and then I was a manager where I come out with someone else and yell at the crowd. And wow. Yeah, it, it was pretty cool. Lots of injuries and, you know, you have your bad moments like everything, but what an amazing experience. Like not many people get to do that. You are the first. You and your wife, Amy, oh, really? are the first that I know of. And I love how you're talking about that scene from Spider-Man because my first thought was Bonesaw. Did you yeah. fight somebody like that? Yes, I had, I had that happen. So in a match with my friend Josh in Adelaide, Australia, I got to fight a cage match against an actual Bond villain from a James Bond film. Oh, wow. It's amazing. It's still sort of surreal to me now, but yeah, giant cage, just like in the film. I had my gear on. I had light-up gear too. So when I came out as loud as the crowd got this amplified lighting system on my chest would rise up as they got louder and they loved it and I sold a ton of merchandise because I you know, covered in lights and looked like an idiot <laughs> um, but yeah, it was so much fun being in that moment it was just like the spider-man thing like in a cage there's like this movie star guy and yeah such a surreal thing to do it still hits me now and then that I actually did it that is so cool so what was your name and what was your gimmick okay so my name was Nick XL, spelled like extra large. And I guess the gimmick started as I was somewhat, I'm not the short guy, but average guy compared to these giants. And I was biting off more than I could chew. So that was kind of the gimmick. I was a bit of a thug and I'd just come out and pick on guys that were legitimate 6'10 and 450 pounds. Like they're giants. And yeah, these are the guys that I wanted to fight personally so I could like test myself. And then the gimmick went along with that as in I was just biting off more than I could chew and I was taking on the big guys. I get beaten up all the time and eventually I won some matches, but at the start it was just make the crowd hate me and then get beaten up. <laughs> so that, that was my gimmick in the beginning. When I became a manager, it was more about showing off for the guy I was competing with, the giant coyote. He was the muscle. He got in the ring and destroyed someone. And then I sat outside and I got the crowd riled up. So that's when all the lights came into it on my gear and, and it became more of a show. And it's still the same character, Nick XL, but this time I was picking on the crowd, no longer the giants in the ring. That is so cool. And as you're telling me this story, I'm looking at the belts you have oh, on the yeah. wall. <laughs> and you and I both have action figures, which just blows my mind that you that, guys... Yeah. Like, that blows my mind yeah. too because I'm a toy collector so it's mm -hmm. like every day I come home and I look up there and go wow that's me and as an action figure <laughs> it never gets old <laughs> that's that great so you know you have all this success as a wrestler and you're managing people and you're winning championships you have an action figure your wife has an action figure yep. you guys are just living life what was it that inspired you to go you know what this is great but there's this other path out there. Like, how did you make that switch? That was... Art's always been there. I've always been drawing, entering art competitions. And I didn't really have a college background or anything. Like, I hadn't studied. So the knowledge I had from high school, what I learned in graphic design courses, which was my career for a while, I just took that and said, it's that thing in the back of my mind the whole time. Like, I've done these amazing, weird things. And the wrestling's just one of them. And I thought, I, I have to pursue the one that's always there in my head. And I've always loved animation since Fantasia. So... I think what happened was it's sitting there and then one day when the GFC hit, I lost my job 
And I said to my wife, if I'm going to lose a job again, I want to care about it. Like I want to have a tear in my eye and I want to walk out and be angry or something. And I just wasn't at the time because I didn't care about the career I had. So I decided at that point, I said to Amy, I'm going to take two to three years. Sorry, I said to her five to 10 years. In my head, I'm saying two to three. And just to make her feel calm about it. And then I said, no, in my head, two to three years, I'm going to make it to America. I'm going to get to LA, which was the capital and it still is of animation. And I'm going to give it a go and just see what happens. And I had no training at all. Like I had to just study online and get the ball rolling. And I don't have any fear of trying new things. So it wasn't a hard decision for me. I just decided, yep, this is it. I'm going to do it. It's the dream I've had since a kid. But it was always the one that I was scared of the most, which, which is odd. I can get in a ring and literally get beaten up. I could perform music on stage, all this stuff. But that one was scary. So yeah, I just decided that's it. I want to care about my career forever now. And that's when things change. Okay. And actually, you bring up a good point. Yeah. You mentioned music on stage, because that's uh, another facet of your life that yeah, is that's, pretty fascinating. That's one I don't tell many people, actually, because I was worried that when I got here, it might hinder my progress a little. So when I was growing up, the neighborhood was a bit rough, so we all kind of enjoyed the stories that we saw in hip-hop music. And we just grew up with that. Like, these stories were relatable. So when I got to about, I think, 16 or 18 years old, I thought, no, I'm going to try to record some stuff at home, and no one's ever going to hear it. And I produced some music, and I just did beats. And I sent them into, like, a local radio station, and they played it. And then I was hooked. I was like, I have to do more. And then one day when I saw a festival come to our neighborhood, I thought, I have to give this a go. But I need to find someone to get on stage and do the emceeing for me. And I couldn't. So that day, I was like, okay, it's got to be me. So I turned up, had the, the tracks with all the, the music on that I produced. And I got on stage, and then... I freaked out, but I still did it. And that's when I started like 10 years of doing hip hop music around Australia and produced a couple of albums, performed with people in America here as well and traveled around and did that. I kind of felt like it was a hobby, but it was always on the cusp of like, if I wanted to push harder, I could have probably done that as a career as well. But I guess the animation thing was always stopping me. Like it was wow. always there, yeah. So yeah, that, that was another weird path. And yeah, not many people know. <laughs> So music and wrestling and animation. So now you're in Australia with your wife. You've decided, all right, done all these other things and they're fantastic, but now I'm going to really focus on animation. So how did you find out about Oatly Academy? Because I know that that's mm -hmm. one of the places where you studied online. Yeah, that was the first step for me. So I went straight to Google. This was like two hours after I got let go. And I typed in the things that popped in my head first. So Fantasia popped in my head. So I typed Disney and then I just put artist. And I think that very week he had just stepped aside from his Disney. Disney job. So he must have put in the Google searches to pop up with those words in the search. And there he was at the top of the list, Chris Oatley. And he was just starting his first, I think it was Painting Drama 1 course. So I put in an application for that and we got to talk to him and he was nervous and I'm nervous and everybody getting in on board on this starting ground for him. All wondering how it was going to be and how it was going to work. But we knew he was a good artist. So he chose his people. We followed him for 10 weeks. We did the courses and that was my first step into learning how to create a visual, like an appealing visual. It didn't matter whether it was for games or animation. He just taught, if you're drawing an image, this is the areas that you can make appealing and how it works. So yeah, that was the biggest step I took. And then it kind of just kept flowing from there. Every time I saw something online, I'd save my money up and I'd just do one every six months or every year if I could. And that's how it started. And he was a big help. And that whole community was too. Like, And they still are. There's hundreds of people now. They seem to take over the CTN event. Oh yeah, they could have OatlyCon. Mm -hmm. I'm waiting for the day that Chris just announced that they're going to have their own convention. Oh, it'll happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, that, that was such a good starting ground. And then it just snowballed. So I've done things like Stephen Silver's course for character design, which was fantastic. Straight after that, I was inspired to do my own things and create stuff, not just like 
go home and draw pictures, but create things I can make money out of, treat myself like a business. Then I've also done Mike Hernandez plein air painting course, which was huge for me. Like what I learned from that three months later, I got a job because of that course. So yeah, going back to Oatly Academy, that started all the snowballing that learning process. And I still do it now. Every year I have to do at least one thing. Thanks to Chris. That is wonderful. So after taking these courses, how did you hone in on wanting to do background painting and design? That took me a while to figure out. So I've been here three years, last month was three years, and it probably took me a year and a half, maybe close to two years to decide what to do. So I was doing character design and kids book illustrations in the beginning of moving here. And then I also did kind of just general viz dev as well. But yeah, I, a friend of mine, Sean Bryant, was helping me kind of figure out what I was best at. And he helped me just question things better. And I realized that environments and backgrounds have always been the thing I looked at. They've always been the thing that came easily to me simple shapes for landscapes and, and I think it was cemented when I did my Canada's plein air painting course and it just it kind of sunk in at that point so it's been probably a year now since I decided okay background design background painting is my thing and as soon as I made that decision everything became easier applying for jobs became easier because I could focus on something picking like a style to emulate in a folio for a different studio because I knew what area to fit in so things became really easy once I picked a starting point. And it doesn't mean I, I don't dabble in other things too, but that process was made easy with figuring out the plein air painting, getting some help from my friends. And I think everyone kind of needs that. Like I'm sure you've had that experience too of figuring out where you fit, mm -hmm. like wh where your artwork's going to fit. Yeah, especially coming from school, because in school you're learning everything. You're taking character design classes, you're mm -hmm. taking storyboard classes, you're taking various visual design classes, yeah. or cinematography, you're editing, and it's just this really broad brush. And I remember it was one of my professors that said, all right, here's what you do. Mm -hmm. Pick the thing you really like yeah. and get really good at that and apply for that. And then once you're doing that, branch out. But if you try to do everything, you'll just end up being really mediocre at five different things. Yeah, that's where I was heading. I was trying to, I was getting any job I could any work and I was doing everything and I enjoyed it but yeah I wasn't getting great at something and now I feel like I am like every week I do plain air painting or I do more backgrounds for the companies I work for now things sink in and I feel like in a couple of years maybe I can branch out even more into other things again but yeah I'm glad I, I picked a trajectory to stick to yeah that was great so you were working then while you were in Australia you said that you were getting children's book illustration jobs mm -hmm. and other design jobs while you were still there is that right yeah like just starting out trying to get the ball rolling with illustration. Okay. How then were you able to make the jump from being there to moving out here? So I spent maybe six months after I got let go from that job and everything started looking at visa applications and it's so hard and I expected it to be, you know, to find a way to get to another country. And I thought I might have had an in because my grandfather was born in New York and he moved to Australia, but he'd been passed away a certain amount of time and I couldn't use family as a way to get here. So I kept applying for jobs, asking companies, could I get supported for visa? And just as I was thinking it's going to be impossible, like I'm just going to have to be the best artist on the internet and get seen that way, I found out about the green card lottery thanks to a friend in wrestling. He was like, his goal was to get to America because this is where the scene is quite big. And when I found out about that, I, I Googled it straight away. It popped straight up. I was like, how did I not know about this? So I applied that year and Amy applied as well. And so we had two chances and I won first year applying. And oh. Yeah, and it's hard to win because I know people that have applied like 15 years. So yeah, I got it straight away. And that was such a weight off my shoulders because 
now it's just like start the process of getting here rather than trying to figure out how to get here and we got really lucky that way because there's a lot of people that struggle for a lot of years to try to make their dream jobs happen overseas and we just got lucky the green card thing kind of saved us and then the process still took a while it was probably one to two years of doing interviews at the american consulate in sydney it took a lot of our money but to sell our house and we lost all our profit out of that too because it was a bad time and so yeah it was it was still a big process but it got us here and, and we're very lucky because of that green card lottery it's an amazing thing that america still has trying to get a, a certain amount of different cultures here like to make sure that every country is represented that's pretty cool what is the interview process like it's very serious. It's the biggest building in Sydney. So you go right to the top level and it's a little scary because there's guys at the door with their guns and, and I mean, Australia's a country that doesn't have guns. So for me, that was kind of freaked me out a bit. And then we walk inside and everyone's very like straight faced, no one's smiling. You're told not to either. You have to stay serious. And then you get up to the counter and we start the process of asking questions. Why are you moving here? What was your career before? Like they're trying to figure out who you are and why you want to come here. And then all of a sudden, I think it was Amy dropped that we were professional wrestlers, which meant the guy behind there, if he liked it, would like us more. And he did instantly. He just looked up and was like, oh really? And it just felt like the process just became more casual. Ah, nice. Yeah, and we could sort of relax as well. So as soon as we said wrestling, that was it. The questions were about the wrestling career. And <laughs> I was like, yes, we've got this. And that's what it was like. So we were lucky there too. <laughs> Very good. All right, so you, you win the lottery, mm-hmm. you sell your house, you move to LA. What was the timetable like? Was there a certain amount of time that you had to get a job before you went back? Or was it just, now you're here, just do what you yeah. can? So the, the lottery was, it's literally just a green card. It's like, here it is. You have to meet an equivalency of being able to get a job. So they have to know that you're hireable. That was the big thing in the interview process. So they knew I was, so it's just, yeah, come here and find a job. So we did, and we landed here with four suitcases and our action figures, that's it. And then we had no credit history, so we had to find how to get an apartment. So we're using like Airbnb, going from like one house to another, and it was a bit stressful. And then finally we found a place that just looked at our savings account and said, okay, no credit history, but you can stay here. So finally we could, we have a dress and that allowed us to get like bills, which meant we could build the credit rating and things got easier after about six to eight months and then it was like being 18 again we had to go take our tests for driving learn how to drive on the side of the road yeah it it was literally like being 18 like we had to make friends just go out and meet people in the industry here for work so it was such a new experience and we got used to the place pretty quick having to force ourselves to get out and set up a new life so we weren't too scared of like being in a new area or having tons of people around us because there's a lot of people here in LA. But yeah, the, the process was just a year of kind of setting up a new life and proving we exist. <laughs> <laughs> we are real people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I like what you said about meeting people in the industry because that's something that's very important. And a lot of people are nervous about that. So mm-hmm. how did you go about finding interesting people to meet and talk to and get to know? The first thing we both wanted to do, because we're both big animation fans, was just go to the events and this was before we even thought about networking as a thing for jobs because in Australia it's as simple as you put your resume in and if you're suitable you get the job so we didn't know that it was such a big deal here to have to know people and learn more about it that way so we just went to like Gallery Nucleus, CSG, CTN and we just started meeting people and talking and through that we realized oh these people can vouch for you and things clicked and I was like okay so this is how you get the work I think you'd meet an art director that might say oh we're looking for people put your resume in and again it just it clicked that okay this is how it is here networking is a thing in animation not just like how we've heard in film or live action or something so we went to all the events 
that we could and we'd wanted to for years from Australia we always looked at Facebook and went oh we're so jealous that someone's at this like event getting a book signed by you know Disney people and Pixar guys so we had no trouble getting out and doing that because it was new and fun for us so yeah we just did that for maybe like a year or two before things started rolling and I guess the networking paid off and making friends paid off that was the best part you can call it networking but every one of those people that we met from a show became a friend so that's just how it started we went to those events we met people we were nice we told our story we've got a, a good story to start a conversation and that's it it's as simple as that just be nice to people and have a conversation um, you don't have to ask for something just say hi and get the ball rolling so then how did you get your first job here in the states oh that's that's a weird story oh, so yeah it's a good one <laughs> i love weird stories so i was so i've been trying for two years pretty much and little bits and pieces of some freelance of private clients and authors and stuff for kids books they were rolling in and i was so annoyed that nothing was happening but I was like, no, just stay calm, get the ball rolling with more study. And I just learned some new things and, and I did the planar painting course. And then I went to a friend's birthday dinner and I told her just, you know, why don't you invite people? Cause she was new to the city too. invite people that you admire, not just people you've met here. And one of those people was Floyd Norman and Adrian Brown Norman. And I was like, just do it, be ballsy. Just send them an invite and see if they turn up. And they did, they turned up. So next thing you know, we're having dinner at the Tam O'Shanter in Glendale which is famous for being like a Disney hangout. And there's a Disney legend across from us. And I met Adrian for the first time. And we knew some of the same people as we were talking. Cause you know, I've been meeting all these new friends in animation. And she, she told me what she'd done as her career uh, since like, I think the early nineties or mid nineties. And it was working for Disney publishing and helping illustrate a lot of their books and put them together. So pretty much our childhood, all the books we probably read, she's had a hand in making. Wow. Which yeah, it's incredible. And then of course Floyd, it's, you know, I don't have to say much, everybody knows what he's done in animation. So we're sitting there, we're, we're exchanging these names and then she says, oh, so I've got some work, why don't we swap business cards? And I gave that to her and I kind of thought nothing of it, like she felt very genuine, but I thought, oh, you know, I've done this a few times, I'll see what happens. And the next morning she gave me an email going, okay, so I've got work, do you want to work on Beauty and the Beast? Oh, that's fantastic. And I was like, what, this is incredible. <laughs> And I felt like, like crying at that point. Like, oh, like it may not be a huge amount of work. It was a bit of freelance, but I've been trying for two years and really struggling. And it was just this chance encounter of like telling a friend to take a chance and then someone turns up and it just happens like that. I can't explain it, it's just a chance thing. And that's kind of how everything else has happened since then. But that was my first step into, I guess, an animation company. Maybe not animation itself, but that's also good enough for me then put on my resume and I could then tell people this is what I've done and it helped my animation career start by getting the publishing work. So that's how I got that. It was just a chance meeting, a dinner, we're sharing a scotch and next morning I'm working on Beauty and the Beast book. So yeah, it was kind of surreal. That is very good. Is that book out now or will it be coming out soon? I think it is out and I have to check this month because they all came out this month, the ones I worked on. But the one that I did work on was, another one I worked on was Sleeping Beauty Story inside the 2017 Halloween book that they release. And I think you can get it at Disneyland still. And a couple of weeks ago, I ran down there when I realized it was out, went on Main Street and crossed my fingers that one of the stores would have the book so I could buy my own artwork from Main Street in Disneyland. And it was there. So I filmed myself. I got selfies all around the park. We didn't do any rides that day. It was just me taking selfies with the book. Nice. Um, so that was a cool day. <laughs> that yeah. is really good. And I know that along with working with Disney Publishing, that you've also created your own book of different air paintings that you've done around the city and you and Sean Bryant had a really good show over at Pop Secret Gallery so can you talk more about that too? Yeah so 
I remember both of us, we were kind of new to LA and we were getting annoyed with not getting work as most people do when they're sitting doing nothing. So we're like, we need to do something. We need to tell people we exist. So the idea was just do a gallery showing. So we talked to Scott Gandell at Pop Secret and just wanted to see if we could get some space there and what time of year. And we booked that in for the month that CTN was on, I think it was last year now, 2017. And we just decided to come up with a theme that we could, it would be easy for us to do in our day-to-day lives. And it was around LA in 30 days was the theme. So we just looked at everything we saw with these fresh eyes because we're not from LA. So I took all the knowledge I'd learned from the Mike Hernandez course and I just started painting furiously. I think in maybe like a three month period, it's close to 30 days total when you count the time I was painting. I did maybe 120, 140 paintings. And in that time, it just, that sunk in. And I didn't do the gallery show because I wanted to sink in, but I'm glad I did because I'm a better painter for it. And then Sean did the same thing. He went away and picked some characters out of different areas around LA and we put that together then. So then I've got all these landmarks of Los Angeles, Disneyland, things around LA. He had all the weird people, amazing characters that he draws. He's phenomenal. And then we just put it together at Pop Secret and it was a really good show. I'm really proud of that. And then that turned into the book, which I released. And I've released that since then like three or four times. And each time it sells out and people email me every probably second week saying you know I got something from the tips that are in there like like these 10 key tips and I'm glad that helps people now so yeah that that show and that book was huge for me Um, I think that was a step into getting the work for Disney because that's the work they saw from that show and other jobs as well like Cartoon Network and I think it kind of snowballed the personal project which they always do I think yeah yeah and that's good and I remember that's something that you know Chris Oatley and Laura Innes and a lot of other people that I've met everyone has said not only is it important to apply to companies, but it's really important to just do your own personal project and put that out yeah. there. And that's really impressive that not only did you and Sean decide to do a personal project, but you decided to make an entire show and book out of it. Yeah, yeah. We we were nervous doing it, but you're totally right. Personal projects are key. Like, I've always got them in the back of my mind. And every time I get nervous about doing one, I just think about the results from the ones that I've done. Like I've done a Kickstarter, I've done the book and the gallery. And every time you may not make a million dollars out of it or get a movie deal or something, but they lead to something else. And your artwork kind of gets better and all those improvements sink in. Like, the practice helps. So yeah, personal projects are a key. And I'm doing as many as I can now. Well, yeah. Let's talk about your Kickstarter, because that's something that I I just found out about the day. Oh, really? When I was, yeah, when I was doing research to make sure that I got all the key <laughs> points of your life that were really, really fascinating. So let's talk more about that. So that was actually the first thing I did when I moved here that motivated me because I wasn't getting work. So I was like, okay, come up with an idea for something. Uh, originally, it was just going to be a kid's book or something like that. And then I'm playing board games with my friends, Brendan and Elise. And I was like, no, I need to do a board game. Like I can put my characters to that. I can put a story into it. So I sat down for three months annoyed my wife every night with trying to figure out like game mechanics and how a tabletop game could work um, something unique so I've made this game that has dice cards which you you can get like little points from uh, when you roll the dice and it has a cup and a ping pong ball so you have to make these trick shots into the cup and I've called it icons of awesome ball I wanted the, the, the most dorky name ever And then the fun part for me to help get some experience with the artwork was then designing that 
and I made like a series of characters for all the cards that you can use. So I think there's 10 or 12 icons from different areas of pop culture. So I think like Frankenstein's one, a Frankenstein's monster, I got like a cowgirl, I've got weird random stuff like a Shaolin monk, a whole bunch of different characters. And it came up with a little backstory about them competing in the ultimate game across the universe and it was this. And I turned it into a Kickstarter and I was nervous and all I wanted was for it to succeed, even if it was like a dollar over. And it did, it got like I think $100 over the mark. The game got made and then people saw that artwork and that helped me get more character design work from that too. So that's proof right there that you can do other things after your personal projects, like good things will happen. And yeah, I've sold more, like a couple thousand of those games to subscription box services that sent them out all around the world too. And then I'm hoping to also turn that into a pitch for a animated TV show. Oh, wow. Yeah, which I'm just starting that process now and I've never done and I have no idea what I'm doing, <laughs> but I'm going to do it. Do it. You should totally do it. Yeah. That's so great. Yeah, so yeah, that's the beauty of personal projects. I'm sure you know too, they, they lead somewhere all the time. Absolutely. Well, I mean, this podcast for me was a personal project yeah. and it helped me get my job at Nickelodeon. And it's also, so cool. it's how we met. It's how I've met a lot of guests that have been on the show Yeah, have become friends because you start interviewing and talking to people and you realize, oh wow, this person's really cool. Yeah, that's great. Out. So, and yeah. I love that like personal projects and also if you put networking into that too, like mm -hmm. people put the two together to meet people and get their work out there. And sometimes they think it's like a little dirty. I'm going to network through my doing my personal project. I'm going to try to meet people. I'm like, no, that's great because everyone in animation is so nice mm -hmm. and they're so lovely and they just want to meet new people. And all my personal projects that I've done to purposely meet people get work. You find the best people in the world in this industry. Yeah. So they always work out. It's a lot of fun too because especially oh, yeah. if you're working on a project for another company, there's always that point, no matter how great the project is or the people are, I found that there's always that point where you have a day that's maybe not so great, mm -hmm. or you're working on something that's not so cool at the time, and so it's nice to be able to come home and say, okay, but I get to work on this, yeah. and I'm not getting any notes on this, it's just my own personal thing, I can do whatever I want with it, and it's a really good outlet, I've found, yeah, just no. being able to do your own thing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I think all artists need that. The full-time job I had this year for, I think it was four months, it really quickly, like a month in, I already needed that. And I thought, I'll be fine. I'll get in like two years and maybe I'll start another project. But yeah, one month in and I'm like, no, I have to do my own thing. And yeah, that's just the artist in us. We all have to. Absolutely. So I'm very curious too. So now at this point, you've worked both on tabletop games, you've worked on books, you've done children's books, and you've also done background painting for Rough Draft Studios and for Cartoon Network. What are, if there are any differences between doing artwork for publishing versus doing artwork for a television show good question i feel like in regards to the stuff for disney and i'll also talk about like my personal stuff the disney stuff is very much like tv so they have a person that does every stage so you've got the character and background designers so just the outlines and then you have the people who paint and color that so that's where i come in and i do the background painting but also the same for the characters for them someone comes in and colors the characters a very specific disney way so it's very much like tv and it starts with a storyboard and a script the writers make so it goes through that same process however when i I've done my personal stuff and stuff for private clients for kids books it's a completely different beast I feel like it's not just background design and painting it's viz dev completely so you're doing the characters you'll come up with color scripts if they really like in depth and want to get that together so when you're doing your private stuff and your personal clients and maybe if you've got like a, a representative that gets you work you're almost more likely to be the whole visual development process whereas if you're with a bigger company like Disney it's very much like TV which I like it's good you get your own expertise and 
someone's specialty into the area that you're good at just like working on a show so yeah it's a different beast each time and I enjoy both like it's always nice to have your stamp on a personal book or a separate client's book but then also it's it's nice just to get a you know Disney background and paint Sleeping Beauty or something and mm-hmm. enjoy that single process that's really good mm. and what would you say from your experience now doing background painting what are some tips that you have or that you've learned about the process that has really propelled you forward with your art two things one is I had no idea how important plein air painting going outdoors and painting from life would be doing the courses that I've done so far the stuff sinks in quickly and you don't need a teacher like there's things that I kind of figured out for myself with lighting and atmosphere that help me with that so now when I sit down at the computer and all the stuff I do for TV is digital all the stuff I've done outdoors is difficult and then you sit down at a computer and it becomes easy so I feel like that is one of the key things I'd tell anyone trying to do background design or paint but particularly painting or even a color stylist go outdoors and paint, it's key. And then digitally, I've then had to get used to taking the simple shapes that I create when I'm outdoors and painting to to start a painting. That's the stuff I use to transition to digital. So using the lasso tool to quickly fill, and this is something common to a lot of artists, but I didn't know how to start a digital painting two years ago like for backgrounds to do it quickly. So I was like painting with a paintbrush and getting really painterly in there. And now I can just do the same thing as when I'm out painting outdoors, fill in simple shapes, get the atmosphere and lighting down really quickly. And then you can go from there with detail and texture and stuff like that. So yeah, getting out and painting from life is just key. And I'm sure it's the same for character designers too. You know, go to cafes and sketch. But yeah, if anyone's thinking of doing background stuff, just go outdoors. Like three months I did painting and nobody looked at my digital work to get me a job at Disney or the book I had at the time too. They just looked at the plain air painting because it shows you can do light and color and you know what you're talking about. That's really interesting because I yeah. feel like when you look at things online and just talking to people and just I'm thinking back at school, mm-hmm. I can't recall anybody actually saying, everybody talks about like drawing from life, yeah. but I didn't really remember anybody saying painting from life. And that's yeah. very important. It's not just about what you can do digitally. So that's really yeah. interesting for me to learn that cause I didn't Yeah. I mean, I didn't know it either before like a year and a half ago. I was doing all the digital stuff, drawing on my iPad outdoors and starting that slowly. But as soon as I picked up a paintbrush, I might have been doing really crappy paintings, but it sunk in instantly. Like every time I did a crappy one. And I think that's something I've heard Chris Oatley tell me once get all the bad stuff out as quickly as possible. That's what outdoor painting helps you do as well. Because you don't want to sit in the sun for two hours. Like, (laughs) get it finished. So it's key, and I'm telling everybody that now. If someone says I'm interested in backgrounds, environments, matte painting, I'm like, just go plein air paint. You don't even need a teacher. Just go outside and start painting. Wow, that's really good. Along with that too, are there any current trends in background painting or background design that you're seeing either in television or film, or is it just whatever the director (laughs) or creator of the show wants? I feel like when I was trying to put a folio together as I was starting the painting last year, I felt like there's definitely, you would know this too, there's a graphic trend of using the lasso tool in Photoshop, being quick, using quick textures to fill and stuff. So I was getting used to that style. And I think it exists in things like Peabody and Sherman, Powerpuff Girls. You can sort of break down how they select their areas and then fill with the textures or the colors. And I think that's still good to learn, but I feel like slowly things are starting to become, not painterly, but those aspects of how to paint are coming into it a bit more. So you can be a bit more free with your textures, a bit more free with your color. You don't have to just use the fill tool in Photoshop and just lock in areas quickly. And I'm noticing that's changing. Even on one of the shows I'm on now, like every couple of weeks, it's like, just add a little more of a texture or paint this a little more. So I feel like it's going to transition into something, maybe not like it was 20 years ago, but you'll see a little more painterly style come in. I feel like that's gonna happen, especially on some of the shows I've been on and I can't talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> 
We'll have to do a follow-up in a year. It's like, and now it's been a year and it's been released. Exactly. Very good. And along with that, too, which painters, either contemporary painters or people from the past, have you looked at for inspiration? I'll start with the animation artists, because they're the first on the pop of my head. Tyrus Wong was is my favorite of all time. I was lucky enough to get to meet the man and, and talk to him and tell him the influence he had on me and also being an immigrant to the country. His story is incredible, um, not just his artwork. So he's the biggest influence on me completely. And if you look at his artwork that inspired Bambi, he's possibly one of the first ever concept artists for a film. His art is what that film became. So his simple style, like he doesn't have to say exactly what the object is in the background. He'll just suggest it with some light or like a little swish of pastel with his finger. I'm like, oh, that's genius. If I could do even half of what he does, I'd have a long career. So look at his artwork to me is just, it's a timeout. I learn a lot. Just his life, uh, everything he did in live action as well. He did set design and stuff for Warner Brothers films and his Christmas cards. He did those for like 20, 30 years for Hallmark, which my grandmother used to give me every year when I was a kid and I had no idea. So his art has been there forever for me. And then other animation artists like Mary Blair and Ivan Dirl, the big Disney people, it's just phenomenal. And I've got to see their work up close working on Disney stuff as well. And that's just amazing. And then other influences, Degas, I like. I like looking at Picasso's stuff just to get ideas for blocking in shapes. I know he's got the weird wonky style that everybody knows, but it's still cool to look at how he treats his shapes and manipulates the objects. And then really, I'm gonna just say, and this sounds like a lazy answer, but I take everything in when I go outside. So I think when someone else may have had an education where they had to study art, I've got all these images in my head and these crazy stories and kind of my life influences my art a lot more than I think other artists do too. So you just, all the stuff I see in the world, all the environments. I take a billion photos. I got like two cameras full. Oh my. Yeah, um, my wife's sick of me taking pictures of clouds. <laughs> I have like 10,000 cloud photos. Um, so yeah, that like real life influences me. And I guess it makes sense now, having done all the plain air painting, everything comes together. Like all the stuff I, I knew I liked for years and now it makes sense why it's something that I enjoy and I have a skill with it. So they're my art influences, real life and Tyrus Wong's my main one. And speaking of Tyrus Wong, Walt Disney Family Museum had a beautiful Tyrus Wong exhibit. And this year you had the opportunity to teach plain air painting at the Walt Disney Family Museum. So let's talk about that because that must have been a fantastic experience. Yeah, that was amazing. I'd never been to San Francisco or the museum. So we were there like an hour and I'm like, I have to move here. It's incredible. <laughs> and then we went to the museum and that too is incredible. I couldn't take it all in. It's so much. And I'm going back there soon, but I saw the museum and then we, as part of the course I got to teach, we got to see the Ivan Earl exhibit. So they took us out there and it was a talking tour. And we walked through that amazing artwork that he has, like his personal work. And then upstairs in the building, they have all the Sleeping Beauty backgrounds. And I'm that guy that stood there while the class went away and I'm salivating for an hour at this one painting. And then I realized, wait a second, there's like 40 other paintings, you better get moving. So I got to see that and I caught up with the class and then uh, I had to teach teachers plain air painting. And I'm like, that was so daunting. I think that was the first teaching course I've done too. And then we did like a 40 minute talk. I told them who I was in my life and they were all like, oh, you're a wrestler. And that's where the talk went then. Uh, then we ran outside and we started painting and I just kind of gave him the tips that I have in my book and tried to keep everything simple and show people how to enjoy painting there. And because I worked on Sleeping Beauty, that's how I got that job too, the Sleeping Beauty books. So they tied that in with the Ivan Earl exhibit. And just to have my name next to his at an event there, that's ridiculous. <laughs> my 10 year old me would be just running around screaming if he knew that. 
That's crazy. But it was such a good experience. And I'm actually doing another talking event there in January. So I'm looking forward to going back. That's very good. And are you ever planning to teach courses down here as well? I think I'm going to. I haven't planned anything yet, but I really enjoyed it and it felt comfortable to me. I'm not afraid to speak in front of people, so it was easy. But I think I might also turn it into something that I could put online as well. Because, I mean, that's where I access all my information, courses, self-taught and with teachers online. So I think that might be a good idea. That would be good. I can see you offering the Nick Gregory player <laughs> course. Yes, plus wrestling. Plus wrestling. <laughs> And hip-hop. It's like all the yeah. combines, all the ties together, there you go. <laughs> Life experiences. Exactly. That was really great. So where can people find you online? Best spot is my website, Nick Gregory, just spell N-I-C, the name Gregory.com. All my links are there to other things. And if you search Nick Gregory on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, I'm usually one of the top ones or top three that come up. And you'll see my big bald head. <laughs> um, so yeah, just search my name, Nick Gregory, N-I-C, and I'll come up. Alright, and if you could go back in time and tell like little Nick Gregory, who's watching cartoons, figuring out where he's gonna go in life, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, wow. I would say do everything the same. Just know that you'll get there. Like if you have a goal, you're gonna get there. And just don't give up on it. That's what I would have said. I'd be happy if I lived the same life again because I've done some crazy stuff. But yeah, just know that you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Very cool. Oh, and I almost forgot to ask you too. Do you mm -hmm. have any other personal projects or anything coming up besides the courses that you're going to be teaching later on at sure. the Family Museum? Yeah, the Family Museum is end of January. I'm not sure the date again. And it's just teaching high school, talking to high school kids. But personal projects, I'm actually going to push all my lightbox stuff that I've been doing. So at the conventions, I do these crazy lightbox displays the last two years. I want to start doing things with animatronics and sculpting my own characters, like moving artwork. If I can get a gallery of that going within a year or two, I think that might be my big personal project. A room that people can walk into and just their jaw will drop and lights everywhere and moving artwork. Well, that so, yeah. sounds wonderful. And I look forward to seeing that. Excellent. I know you and I know that you can do that. Yeah. <laughs> you're already doing so many things. So Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It has been a delight talking with you. Thank you, Angela. And uh, keep up the good work. I always listen. So thank you. And that concludes my interview with Nick Gregory. Special thanks to Nick for being a fantastic guest. And make sure to check out all of his websites in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed today's interview, please leave a positive review in iTunes. All of your reviews help more and more people to find out about the show. And you can also support the show by visiting the website at www.theanimatedjourney.com and clicking on the PayPal button on the right-hand side of the screen and leaving a donation. All of your donations help me to pay for the technical costs associated with the show. And you can also support the show by supporting our sponsors, Amazon, Audible, Loot Crate, and Blueberry Podcast Hosting. Every time you click on the banner ads and make a purchase, a little bit of money comes back to the show. So thank you to everyone who has supported the show, either through leaving a positive review, a PayPal donation, or by supporting one of our sponsors. They appreciate it, and I appreciate it as well. And to see what else is going on in the wonderful world of animation, you can visit the Facebook page at facebook.com slash theanimatedjourney. On Tumblr, the site is theanimatedjourney.tumblr.com. And on Instagram and Twitter, the handle is at animjourney. And to see what I've been up to lately, you can visit my website at www.sketchysoul.com. On Tumblr, the site is sketchysoul.tumblr.com. And on Instagram and Twitter, the handle is at sketchysoul. 
And to check out more of Jeff's work, you can visit his website, www.jeffbot.com. That's J-E-F-B-O-T. On Tumblr, it's jeffbot.tumblr.com. On Twitter, it's at jeffbot. And on Instagram, it's at shootsy. And that's S-H-O-O-T-Z-E-E. So that's it for the last interview for the year. It has been a very interesting year, you guys. A lot of things have happened, good and bad, but we did it. We all got through it together. And 2018 promises to be a banner year. So get those resolutions in if that's your thing. Hope that all of you out there are having a wonderful time with family and friends. To everyone who has gotten a job this year or who has graduated from school, congratulations for all of you out there fighting the good fight, working on your portfolios, getting everything together. Keep at it. Your time is near. I guarantee it. And thank you to everyone who has supported the show through the years. Next year will be the third year of the podcast. I can hardly believe it. That is so amazing to me. And I want to say to all of you out there, for those of you who are listening for the very first time, for those of you who have been on the journey the entire time, thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for your kind words, for your emails, for your reviews, for all those times that I've gone to conventions or mixers or at work and people have come up to me and said, hey, I love the show. Thank you so much. All of you make all of this worthwhile and I truly appreciate it. So I hope that all of you out there have a fantastic holiday season. Be encouraged, have a great day, and here's to 2018.